Thank you. Okay, Ted, I'm turning the recorder on, but we're not going to start for just a second. Okay. Um, the, uh, I, pre I prepped this with another gentleman, and, and what I wanted to do today was when I got briefed about what you guys are doing, uh, you know, in March, you know, it was all about uh, isolation and, and containerization and things like that. And it was all really interesting. But what I was kind of surprised about was that, you know, it, it really um, uh, was talking about the, the value of containers and you were accelerating the adoption of, of containers by solving a variety of problems around them. But also, uh, you were using containers not just as a scalability mechanism, but as a as a way to you know accelerate um, uh, uh, and make you know application development better and more useful, and also to help ML workloads and AI workloads. Mm -hmm. So what, what was surprising to me is that how little of the the journey to containerization really was about scalability, and so. Uh, that's what I wanted to talk about is why is that true? You know, what, what are the microservices architecture, you know, containers, Kubernetes, you know, what do they offer, you know, outside of scalability? Because it seems like a lot of times, you know, their, their, their scalability features are, 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 um, are emphasized. Yeah. And, uh, and are we starting here? No, I just wanted to, I mean, okay. does this make sense to you? It does, and um, it isn't that scalability isn't important, of course. Right. It is that scalability is essentially impossible if you don't have good isolation. And so to some degree, to actually a pretty large degree, scalability is a consequence of this isolation, not a separate benefit. But, but also isolation then has a bunch of other benefits and that's what I was sort of wanted to talk precisely, about. Precisely, precisely. Um, okay. And especially yeah. when you have small teams. But yeah, we, I'm, I'm, I'm leaning forward and getting started there. Okay, here we go. <laughs> well, I'm, uh, so anyway, transcribers and everybody, I'm gonna take a break, a pause, and then I'm gonna start the podcast and that's where the transcript uh, should start. Hello everybody, it's Dan Woods here on the Early Adopter Research Podcast, Designing Enterprise Platforms. As many of you know, Designing Enterprise Platforms is a podcast about the deeper issues involved in creating big victories in enterprise technology. What we try to do is look at how to create product-based platforms and how to solve really urgent problems that are of great significance to the enterprise. And as part of what we do, we also try to deal with very deep issues and today we're going to be doing that with Ted Dunning, the CTO of MapR. Would you say hello, Ted? Well, howdy. Uh, that's kind of like hello. That's good, good enough for me. And uh, Ted is CTO of MapR, which is a company that has been around uh, for most of the Hadoop era. They're a company that has always taken the, the point of view that Hadoop was a great infrastructure, but it needed to be improved. And they've done that by improving the file system and then a variety of other aspects of it. And at this point, uh, you've sort of departed from the Hadoop only uh, ecosystem and now are creating what I think of as a data fabric that is uh, there to serve the most scalable uh, uh, and complex uh, geo distributed applications uh, in the modern world. That's absolutely 
So, and frankly, that was our vision from the beginning. Uh, Hadoop was the way that people talked about scaling for a long time. And so we definitely sold into that market. But our view always was where would compute be in 10 and 20 years from, from the beginning? And what would we need to do to meet those needs? And it's now 10 years after we started. And the needs that we're meeting are very, very much the ones that we uh, envisioned. Now, can't say if 10 more years we're going to be correct, but yeah. Well, and let me just explain for those who don't know MapR uh, where you're at now. Uh, the way I think of MapR is as a data fabric. And by that, I, I mean that it presents a surface area uh, so that an arbitrary set of consumers can get access to data. Uh, they can get access to the data in a variety of different ways, uh, you know, through APIs that are specially created for them, through streaming, uh, uh, through uh, uh, more traditional, you know, access methods such as SQL. Underneath that is a layer that consolidates and integrates data from a variety of different sources and also makes that data scalable. And at the bottom layer is uh, MapR's ability to uh, cache, to search, to store all sorts of different types of data uh, in a unified format so that you can make the APIs and the other data access methods more powerful. Would that be a yeah. fair uh, a statement about where you're at right now? Yeah, I think so. And I think that, <clears throat> I think it's a very fair statement. I think there was one distinction that was glossed a little bit in what you said, and that is that we view a data fabric as a thing our customers build out of the tools and components that we provide. Uh, and we add a new word, dataware to denominate our stuff to distinguish it from the data fabric the customers build. And the key capabilities there are that data has to be made secure, has to be in the right places, sometimes multiple places. You may need a stream that has many, many entrance or egress points around the world, but is some sort of global data structure. And you have to maintain plausible levels and usable levels of consistency across that entire regime. Well, this is good. So now what we're going to do is, is bring up the topic we're going to talk about today. When I last got my, my latest tour through what you guys are doing at MapR, uh, it was really interesting because the emphasis was very much on how MapR, you know, in its data fabric infrastructure could accelerate the adoption of microservices and specifically the Kubernetes uh, framework for managing microservices. And I had always thought about microservices in terms of scalability, uh, being able to you know, arbitrarily uh, create a, a network of services and then have a scaling point at any point in that network. And uh, you know, that of course is a, a well-worn a, a, a architecture in a lot of the web scale companies. Now, what was interesting to me though, is how much the, the people that I talked to, the, the product marketing and the product managers, talked about how the benefits of microservices were not just about scaling, but were also about improving the applications, about making them more flexible, about making them higher uh, uh, value and, 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 and higher performance, but also about making AI and ML workloads work a lot better uh, and, and because of, of, of the isolation and the other properties of microservices. So 
would you explain to me why that is? What is it? Why have you emphasized uh, that MapR can help you adopt uh, Kubernetes and microservices in an orderly way? Sure. Uh, if you think about what containers do, they, they let you run compute uh, in a nice environment that, that can be different from container to container so that you don't have to have exact matching of environments and so on. That's what containers do alone. And that alone is not very useful. It, it's nice, but it's not where you need to go. When you add orchestration to what a container does, you are able to replicate containers as necessary to, to whatever scale you like. And typically it's more than one because you typically want to not be dependent on the correct functioning of any small piece of hardware. So you have replication. You also want it to be positioned within the cluster correctly for multi-tenancy reasons, for access to special capabilities and such. And what do you mean by positioned? Well, uh, Ellen uh, Friedman gave a talk a little while ago about five things that executives should not know about their data systems. Not, not the five things they should know, but five things they should not know. And one of the key things is they should not, and this, this actually applies down below the executive level, you shouldn't be able to point at a particular machine that's doing a particular function in your system. You should have computing resources kind of as a fungible thing, but in fact, you should not necessarily know at any given point that's the database machine, that sort of thing. And uh, you should have a system that positions these things for you and repositions them as necessary, either isolating them or co-positioning them. But either way, there's a positioning function there. Now, another thing, and, and that positioning is part of scaling, that positioning is part of multi-tenancy. Uh, those are all key constructs uh, that come out of good positioning and replication. But a third thing that the Kubernetes must do is name your systems, your services. It should provide access. And, and names are magical things. Names let you have power in a very, very concrete way. Uh, it, it, it sounds all like Wicca sort of magical reasoning here, but names are really, really important because they let you abstract away details that you should not know like position, like number of, of resources and such. So naming, replication, and positioning are the three things that Kubernetes or any someday other uh, container orchestration system must do. But if you think about it, computing alone is only half the story. The other half is data, clearly. Well. Yep. Exactly. So, so, so basically what you're saying is that if I create a system and I am able to implement it in a way that I have control and abstraction on the you know, replication of the services, the positioning of them and the naming of them, then all of a sudden I'm in a better place, even if I'm not going to be uh, uh, scaling to a large degree. You're, you're in a vastly better place because you're able to have machines which are now 
relatively vanilla and can be replaced. You can push stuff around so you can take stuff out for maintenance. You can do operating system upgrades. You have now decoupled this lower level of <clears throat> managing your resources from the higher level of managing your services. And this, when, we, when we started the call, you, before we started recording, you mentioned that this was all a matter of isolation and that the isolation benefits that you just mentioned actually have to precede the ability to scale. Yeah, absolutely. The isolation must precede scaling or, um, you know, another way to say it is if we want to sound more um, academic and, and, and mathematical, uh, isolation is a necessary precondition, although not entirely sufficient, to scaling a system. And the isolation required there allows us to replicate a service and to reposition it relative to other uses in a computer system. And then to access it by a name, no matter where it is. Yes. Uh, now, if you think about data, though, the things we have to do with data include replicate it for safety or for bandwidth. We have to position it correctly. Uh, you know, we don't want two copies on a single rack if we can help it. We want to position data near uh, its consumption so that we minimize network bandwidth, although that's much less critical than it used to be by two orders of magnitude. We want to make sure that we position data onto uh, technologies and hardware that meet the current operational requirements, either prioritizing cost, prioritizing performance. So we have positioning sorts of considerations for data. Um, we might also want to make sure that certain classes of data are not co-located, that the data path to these objects never intersects. This is a security constraint sometimes because uh, certain attacks, which are not well known, but I mean, they're, they're highly publicized, but I meant not necessarily seen much in the field, can occur if adversarial processes run on the same computer. And so co-location is a key thing and lack of co-location is also a key goal. Got and then the last thing that we need to do with data, and this is absolutely critical, and this is the revolution of what file systems are and they mean, is to name it. Now, this is exactly what we had to do with computation. Position it, replicate it, name it. That is what a Kubernetes does for computation. There's a co-equal partner with Kubernetes the data layer, which needs to provide those same capabilities for data. It's like Kubernetes for data. That is the thing that we've been building for 10 years. It does exactly those things. It, it even has something called a container in it, even though it's for data. It's not a computational container. It's not a Docker container. Yeah. It's not a standard Docker interface or container interface container. And, and just to play it back, the idea here is that you know, you're in a complex environment and you're trying to make sure that you've spread your computing out, scaled it and, 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 you know, abstracted it properly. And then if you don't pay attention to the, to the 
things of that you just mentioned about you know replicating positioning and uh, naming data, then out of all of those uh, services, you're going to have to either create another service that then you know feeds the data to those services. But then underneath that service, you're going to have to create something that follows that service around and provisions the right data to it. And so. Yeah. What you're saying is that 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 you've created a sort of a microservices approach to provisioning that data, so you can have basically data access APIs that can keep up with your your uh, uh, Kubernetes services architecture. Yeah, uh, and and they can scale co-equally, can scale uh, and position across larger, possibly geo uh, distributed systems. All of that that you want for computation, you absolutely want for your data as well. Okay, so then now let's go through why this is an advantage for AI and ML workloads. Because the, uh, uh, the, the, the briefing that I had, uh, they mentioned that, that people who aren't even using AI and ML at scale are, are just getting started with it, are finding that they're accelerating their progress and their progress not only in training models and you know getting started, but also their progress in going into production and managing the flow of that model lifecycle once in production, uh, uh, and that even uh, without you know massive scalability requirements, the the way that you have delivered this uh, supporting infrastructure, uh, supporting data infrastructure for microservices is helping them with those kind of workloads. Walk me through why this is, is a help. Well, let's take a few points that, that can seem a little bit outrageous, but I think are really should be non-controversial. Um, one is that machine learning is just a new way to code. Uh, the, the, the point here is that instead of knowing our domain and knowing what we want to do, and writing our semicolons and so on, and and um, encoding stuff up, we're going to uh, write some code, but then use data to learn either some parameters to our code or even to actually learn code. And we're going to combine those together to build our services. Now that's a new way to do this, and it has new kinds of risks and so on, but it's just another way to build a computational artifact. So machine learning, in some senses, is just another way to code. It, it needs to cause changes and so on. Now, a second point is that, and I'm going to go ahead and use the very frank words for it because this isn't being broadcast. Most of the process of machine learning consists of the bullshit, the logistics, the getting the data ready, the, the, the managing the learning, the realizing you screwed up, the, the realizing you, you started with the wrong question and so you got the wrong answer. And then once you've finally got something you think works, then deploying it, deploying the next version of it, deploying 10 versions of it, monitoring it, all of this is far, far more work. Now, a very different skill set. So it's not necessarily all data science work, but it's far more work than the actual machine learning part itself. This is particularly true for the vast majority of machine learning applications, which are not these remarkable, amazing 
image processing, voice recognition things that get so much press. They are the simple things. Like, here's a charge code on these transactions. That one's wrong. Probably, let's put it for human review or simple recommendation engines. So, you know, there the machine learning task sometimes shrinks down to almost nothing once you get the right question and the right data. Now, if 90% of the work is the logistics and, and bullshit, as I put it, then if you do that even 10% less efficiently, suddenly instead of 10% of your day devoted to machine learning, you have 1% of your day. And you know, out of 480 minutes of your day, you've got eight, five, or less minutes to think about doing the machine learning. And so doing I the see. logistics better has a huge leverage on what you can do creatively or fairly or ethically. All of the issues of machine learning come down to can you actually spend more than seconds per day doing them? And if now, you can't, you're, you're really not going to do a good job. Now, I want to do, I get it. And so you're basically, you're saying that the, the, the data logistics are so much easier when you have a, a data fabric that you can just bring the data where you need, make it accessible. If you're scaling it, you can easily, you know, have it be accessed by scale, you know, scalable uh, services. And, uh, and then, you know, you're, you're, you're not struggling with lots of scripts and lots of data, fragile data pipelines and, and, and uh, all of this stuff. So... And and, and let, let's just encapsulate that whole argument in one small observation, that if everybody worries about everything all the time, nothing gets done. But if I can focus on one task and not pay attention to some parts of the problem, if I can have separation of concerns, then suddenly a huge amount of progress is possible. Well, now I'd like to talk about a couple of, um, of uh, thought experiment type of things. Uh, uh, and the first one is about uh, the alternative approaches to microservices that sometimes work better when you don't have a uh, top to bottom, you know, rewrite of your software uh, possible. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I've been seeing is in application migration workloads, uh, that things like Nginx work really well as a very direct and simple microservices implementation. So that you can, you, let's say you have a big monolithic, you know, uh, application, and then you, you abstract away the, the UI and you create a new UI. And then underneath you, that UI, you then access the monolith, you know, uh, one way or another to get it in, in one huge service. And then maybe you have new services that are then powering different parts of the AI that's expanding. And then gradually, as time goes on, maybe you're able to break that monolith into two or three services, and then maybe, you know, five or 10. And then all of a sudden, the monolith is no longer a monolith. And, you know, obviously, the ability to do that is, 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 um, uh, depends on the quality of the code base and the level of isolation in, in, in that and how the data is stored. But it seems to me that just like you're talking about uh, the data logistics being helpful in an ML application, it seems like if you're going through like a, 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 a microservices-based uh, application migration scenario using something like Nginx in the way I described, this data fabric could really serve that use case as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I can give you an example of a story. Um, but, but if you think about it, when somebody starts describing a system, even a monolith, they almost always start drawing squares on a whiteboard and say, this is some function, and then they draw an arrow, and then stuff goes to this other function, and then they draw an arrow, and then stuff goes over here. They, they very much talk about it that way. So they, they have in their mind something that's kind of a services orientation. But remember also that the definition of microservice has nothing to do with micro. It has everything to do and only to do with independent deployment. And so your monolith could turn into a microservices architecture without ever being split at all if you just add another monolith next to it that is independently deployable. They are now microservices. They're kind of mega micro, but they're now microservices. So if we think about that, and if we go there, then uh, having data in the form we like and, and accessible and having primitives, and, and, then, and the Nginx example you're talking about is just a way of codifying a communication path. It is saying, here's a URL, and I'm going to be doing gRPC, or I'm going to be doing REST over HTTP, or, or whatever it is, you know, REST over JSON. It's just a way of saying, here's the point of communication. And in a data layer, you should have comparable primitives that allow you to do alternative forms of communication. For instance, the Nginx right now synchronous response kinds of service is one model. That's a great model when synchronous response is required. But asynchronous services are also very valuable where you give it the request, you don't wait for the result. It, you, it, the system takes responsibility for doing it. And that is best mediated not by a URL, but by a stream. And if a stream doesn't require that you get a, a cluster of your own or anything like that, if it has no more effort than touch a file, create a file, and say, there's my stream, that's the service entry point, and I can deploy new services of that kind in new directories, then the data layer is now facilitating that service orientation for the asynchronous side of things or the implementation of these services very, very well. So yeah, exactly. Data layers take away the effort and, and, and tedium and silly effort away from building services or breaking up monoliths or whatever. So you have a good data layer. Now, what you're, so let's get, let's pop this back to the, uh, to the, to the original um, sort of idea of the podcast, which is, of course, if you uh, have forgotten, it's called Designing Enterprise Platforms. It's a podcast from Early Adopter Research, and I'm Dan Woods talking to Ted Dunning. So the, if we pop this all back up to the original mission of our podcast, basically what you're saying is that if you want to accelerate your adoption of Kubernetes, of microservices, you have better have a plan for how you're going to be delivering data and handling all of the data-related issues, whether it's the consistency you mentioned, the replication, the positioning, the scalability, um, uh, and also you know, building robust, uh, powerful APIs that can actually consolidate whatever data you need. Uh, and, then, and, then, and then, as you said just now, being able to access the data in whatever method is most natural to the application. 
and what you, the it sounds like the argument you're saying is that 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 MapR will allow you to do as much as you want at the microservices layer with Kubernetes, and then have the data layer keep up without a, being a delay and having lots of heavy lifting. Yeah, and without being a distraction, lets you do what you want to be doing, and not have to do a bunch of stuff you didn't want to be doing that isn't getting you toward your goals. Got it. Um, well, I think we have achieved victory in terms of explaining what we want. Are there any other related issues to this that we should be talking about? No, I, I think that just, just to put an underline under that, that isolation sounds like one thing, but that, that, that catchphrase that, that you wrote down there about we shouldn't have everybody worry about everything all the time. That is an isolation motto so that we can put some isolation around what we're worried about. That's the isolation ultimately that we're talking about. And you have to build it in at a technical level. You have to isolate your systems. So changing one doesn't require you change all the others. Deploying one, redeploying it, doesn't mean you have to redeploy all the others. Uh, essentially, this isolation is not just a, um, a human thing. It's a technical thing as well. It's an architectural thing as well, or, or vice versa. It's not just an architectural thing. It's a human thing, a humane thing, in fact, <laughs> if you think about that. And it helps us build systems that are enormously more efficient and enormously more reliable and robust than otherwise. And having been on 24-hour call for new systems, I don't want to do that unless I know that I'm never going to get the call or nearly never. Yeah. But I'm happy to do it if I get a call like once every four years. I'm happy to have everybody on the team on call if it's that rare. And that's the sort of thing what we're, that we're trying to build. Well, excellent. So, um, you know what, Ted, this has been a fabulous um, call. And uh, again, Ted Dunning is the CTO of MapR. And uh, we just had a nice talk about isolation, microservices, Kubernetes, and the data layer that supports it. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It's been fun.